Welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Dr. Charles Goldman. I'm here with uh, Kathy Burns, who's filling in for Ed. You may know Kathy from uh, her segments with Ed uh, on the uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm segment, which we will have a little bit later, uh, a particularly fun one by my... Uh, <laughs> it will be fun, Charles. I found one in, in my particular uh, strange uh, you know, emotional state, which is we're going to talk about food for the apocalypse. That, I can't wait. So, Actually, we're going to have a lot of fun with Ed gone today. That's true. Ed, 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 Ed is off on a secret mission of mercy. Um, we were planning on setting up a fundraiser for him, uh, a GoFundMe, but we'll not do that. Um, and... Um, Hopefully, Ed will share some of the details next week when he gets back, and I, I won't be here, but Kathy obviously will be with him. Uh, so we're broadcasting today from the uh, bunker deep under the prairie somewhere in Iowa, perhaps near Des Moines. Uh, Des Moines, of course, formerly known as the cultural and culinary crossroads of America prior to the reign of uh, Governor Kim Reynolds. Yet, even in such bizarre times, this show must go on. But first, let's thank our sponsors, including Gateway Market and Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Market and Cafe. Thanks again to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help you through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact DavidDrakeFamilyPsychiatry.com. So um, the show does go on here, and um, we want to thank the Des Moines Irish Session for the tunes that will kick off each segment of this program. Kathy, uh, welcome. Thank you. Although it's actually thank your, you, welcome. It's to actually my your home. it's actually your house. So uh, I guess I should thank you it's for a, letting me uh, a, join you. It's a very ma and pa operation. That's <laughs> right. So um, the first segment and. Uh, this one is going to be, I think, a little bit dynamic as to sort of where we go with this. Um, concerns the last week that was very eventful in terms of Supreme Court decisions. Um, and we'll focus uh, the majority of the time on the affirmative action decision, mm -hmm. which I think in some ways is the most consequential, although possibly the 303 creative decision might actually sneak in there as maybe even more consequential. We'll talk just briefly about that. Um, and as part of this, um, I'd like to bring some edification to what admissions processes look like. Um, mm -hmm. And I have been involved in admission processes for residencies for over 25 years. Ten of those uh, ran a residency. Um, and I also worked with UC Davis, which is a very consequential institution uh, in terms of affirmative action, which... I'll relate in, in a little bit. Charles, so for, for some of our listeners who maybe they haven't noticed that you've been on the show before, can you just describe a little bit what capacity your admissions work was in as a, as a doctor? and as a Sure. So um, at the residency level where I'm the director, the ultimate decisions on the creation of our list, um, because uh, residencies are given out through a match process. Basically, mm -hmm. the institution makes a list. And then the um, list is worked against the preferences, a list that's created by the applicants, and it's favored toward the applicants. So the applicants essentially, um, the way this whole selection computer program works, is that they work first from their list to make sure that they get what they want. And then uh, it depends on where they rank on our list as to whether we get them. So I think that's a, actually an important point, mm -hmm. which is, a lot of what's happening here is about misinformation and um, feelings. Well, people were rising up against the affirmative action because, uh, you know, some folks were using racism as a reason to strike down affirmative action, correct? Well, they were... It is it's a, ironic. It's a, it's a perverse process, that's correct, which basically you have... You know, this notion, a lot of people who are African-Americans in particular feel as though that their qualifications are, um, their qualifications are questioned because they're seen as having benefited from affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can go to Harvard and get through Harvard, whether you got there by affirmative action or not, that shows that you have the wherewithal, the merit, as 
is used way too much in this case, to be there. Um, so, but nevertheless, that's correct. Because what happens is that then people who claim that they are displaced by the choice of mm -hmm. the African-American applicant, and again, it's generally directed to the African-American students, um, that those who are displaced, um, you know, use that to say, well, see, they weren't really qualified right. they to be there. Yeah. Right. Because they feel that they got there only because of affirmative action. But anyway, maybe, mm -hmm. all right, so maybe let's move back yes. to some of the other decisions first. I mean, when I was looking at this and trying to get things together, which has been pretty cumbersome because I've been reading constantly on this this week and also talking to lawyer friends and everything else. That's why we're sending you home with some fresh cherry tomatoes. Yeah, okay. Today, Charles, is your reward. So the thing that bothers me about this week more than anything else is that, and I've said this to you before and Ed, I find that when the word fair, it's not fair, comes out of the mouth of anybody over the age of eight or nine, I really have a problem. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what happened this week is about what I think is a pretty juvenile notion of fair. Affirmative action is much more complex, but the other mm -hmm. two cases, not so much. So one of the cases was 303 Creative, in which a woman who um, has a web design website kind of presented a theoretical case to the Supreme Court because, one, there was no gay client that she supposedly was going to have to, under the law and anti-discrimination law in Colorado, um, have to make a website for. She wasn't doing wedding websites at the time she filed the suit, and it's not okay. even clear that her injunction as a Christian against doing it, which, by the way, is already protected by previous decisions, mm -hmm. um, was even on the website until after she filed the suit. So the question is, what's her injury? Because it's a totally theoretical case. It's mock court. Mm. But nevertheless, I mean, she really shouldn't have even had the standing to bring this case. But it was a setup. It's just another setup case. It's showmanship. Well, it's, Show she's a straw person. She's a straw person. Yeah. You know, And so she brings this theoretical case. And the danger in this theoretical case, besides the fact that really it, it raises the question of what is standing anymore in a, in a legal case, she brings this case. And she claims that under freedom of speech exemptions. Mm -hmm. So she's not arguing that it's the religious issue. That was already decided in, in the okay. majestic uh, you know, bake shop case. She <laughs> makes the argument that the exemption should exist under freedom of speech as autistic expression, which opens up a wide can of worms as to if freedom of speech is going to be the exemption, the possibilities for exemptions are much wow. wider than religion. I can't religion. wait. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply for a lot of artistic expression freedom of speech Rights. Right. And I have so, so many ideas. So that's the concern there. So that's, that's, a, that's a fairness case. Then the second fairness case, which, of course, is directly opposite to what you know, the affirmative action case is about, in a sense, which is affirmative action, is trying to make education more accessible. The loan case, which I think probably was legally decided correctly, um, is about that... Biden's administration mm -hmm. used the emergency powers under the COVID emergency to do this loan forgiveness. Okay. And I think probably that in that situation, it, 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 it was pretty you know, questionable. Mm -hmm. But what interested me is that when the, this case, these kind of you know, cases first were trying to be brought to the Supreme Court, there were a couple of individuals came out and said, well, I'm hurt by this. Right? Correct. Mostly these were individuals who were saying, well, I paid off my loans. Yeah, and they don't have to. Right. Or I didn't have to take a loan. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is Iowa Which is was, was awesome. right. Iowa was one of <laughs> the states where the attorney generals were given standing, even though there's no evidence of injury. They kind of came up with this notion that it hurt the tax base and everything else. But basically, they really didn't have standing because to bring the case. Because they're calling it a loan transfer program right. instead of loan forgiveness. So they're saying there's no getting rid of debt. It's it's transferred to the taxpayers. That's correct. That's the argument. Even though it turns out that actually tax revenues probably go up when people don't have to pay back part of their loans because that money reenters the economy. And they, they can get all kinds of wedding websites built. <laughs> exactly. So... Um, so they, you know, basically said we're standing in for the taxpayers, and, and this is what Brenna Bird said, our attorney general, because Iowa is one of these mm -hmm. these states, 
Today's Supreme Court win stops Biden illegal, Biden's illegal mass student debt cancellation and protects the 87% of Americans without student debt from having to foot a $400 billion bill. Oh, that's Americans, uh, Americans who work hard to pay off their loans or decide not to go to college so they can start a family, join the military, or go straight into the workforce after school shouldn't have to pay for someone else's loans. Okay, so basically what she's saying is, now, the number of Iowans who would have benefited from this, by the way, was about a quarter of a million. Not an inconsequential number. No, Okay, that's big time. So what she's basically saying is that I don't like this policy, or the state doesn't like this policy, mm -hmm. right? And it's unfair to people who don't benefit by a policy that they should have to pay for somebody else. Now, interestingly, that doesn't get you standing as an injured party, because if that were the case, every one of us could say, all right, I don't like that churches get tax exemptions, and yes. then use that tax exemption to fund their political action committee activities that are illegal. Or okay. carbon offset credits when when you're the you're the landowner whose land is being gutted, and then and then the, the taxpayers bearing the burden of that that credit to the corporations. Correct. Okay. So there's lots of things we all don't like the way our taxpayer money is spent. But in fact, you're precluded to becoming an injured party f using that rationale because if that were the case, our government would be completely dysfunctional. Mm -hmm not just the federal, but the state governments would be dysfunctional too, and the courts would be clogged with cases of people claiming that I don't want you to do this because I don't benefit, essentially. Mm -hmm. So again, it's, it's, it's a it's not fair kind of thing, which is, I think, you know, pretty pathetic in terms of that part of it. Whether they legally did it the correct way, I think that's clearly arguable. So then we move on to affirmative action, um, which of course was the headline mm -hmm. case of last mm -hmm. week. And, you know, the affirmative action case, just, just for a quick history of affirmative action. So affirmative action was created initially to force contracting by the federal government to be fair um, and to favor initially in the Kennedy administration in 1961 to um, take affirmative action against groups that have, you know, previously been um, excluded because of, you know, either overt or covert advantages that were given to other racial groups. And in this case, the fair part of it that you said was to address actual harm. Right. Actual the actual harm, harm was that because— They'd it, been left out. It, the actual harm was that they were being, right, outcompeted, left out— from, Excluded. —from federal contracts, um, and that— this wasn't meant as reparations, okay? This is no. the problem. The two things that immediately became uh, associated with were a time of reparations regimen. Mm -hmm. And then the education piece of it, which expands in the mid-60s with the Civil Rights Act. And then in 1965, when Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, expands it to include not just race, creed, uh, color, and national origin. He expands affirmative action to include... Uh, gender, mm -hmm. and um, hey. yes, and and so <laughs> the, immediately this becomes that people who are unworthy are being picked, right? Because for reparations purposes, and well, then, quote unworthy, correct? Uh, yeah, and then um, it morphs as it becomes more policy as the regulatory agencies predominantly push it into the education field. Um, it becomes seen as quotas. Mm -hmm. And this, okay. this culminates in the Bakke case in 1978, and here you'll see once again, involving an applicant to University of California Davis Medical School, a gentleman in his mid-30s by the name of Alan Bakke. Um, he had been uh, denied admission twice at um, UC Davis. And at that time, UC Davis explicitly was holding 12 of their 100 slots for minority students. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, this was brought to the Supreme Court. Bakke wins, and quotas mm -hmm. are basically you know, forbidden. And then, but at the same time, that decision ensconces that diversity in education is, a, you know, is an admirable goal. Well, and that, that's... That's where I'm going to jump in with my word nerd, you know, personality here, because 
I say it's unfair to have people go to college that isn't diverse. Anybody who pays money or gets a loan or whatever to go to college and there's not diversity, they're getting cheated because the origin of the word college means collected together. In other words, a diverse group coming together to, to accomplish a goal or to gain something. So I would I would even argue the other way. Well, but the 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 question is what constitutes diversity? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, right, to right. some degree we've unfortunately allowed diversity to predominantly revolve around skin color. Right. Um and our Neanderthal notions of race in mm-hmm. this country. Mm-hmm. You look different than me. So you're a different race, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the race we, the race consciousness we've created is, it, 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 you know, it, it appeals to the simian part of our brain and to the tribalism that comes from that. You know, and it's a, it, it, I can't say it's not a natural urge in some ways. But it's true, people have been harmed because of the notion that people hold about race. So race is a real issue in that way, even if biologically it's not a real thing. That's correct. Biologically, okay. it, other than, yes, that there's skin color involved, that's a minor phenotypic characteristic that has no, no association with people's capabilities mm-hmm. and their genetic complement that underlies that capability. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it, the, the next sort of 40 years after 78 are dominated by the idea of how to best achieve a two things because what's the purpose of college the purpose of college is number one to um expose you to people who you wouldn't see mm-hmm. normally particularly at that time in communities that are were basically segregated due to redlining mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i mean and and redlining had the other factor of diminishing the wealth of those who were redlined, which right. was, you know, which means they predominantly African-Americans. The, the means right. to go to college. Exactly. Since the, your access to college, just like many things in the United States, is based on your affluence and your access to, to wealth. So, um, so you know, there were subsequent cases, one involving a woman by the name of yeah. Abigail Fisher down at UTA. And this is where a policy had been put in place to try to avoid the race issue in which t- the upper 10% of every high school in Texas would be allowed admission to U- UT Austin, which is mm-hmm. the flagship of the UT system. Mm-hmm. And Abigail Fisher does not um, qualify for that, but she does qualify for consideration under a secondary admission program for the other 20%, and race was a consideration within mm-hmm. that program. And this case went on for three years and went back to the Supreme Court twice before it was ultimately decided that the racial allowance in this secondary admission program was valid as a tool for diversity because UTA had shown that they could find no other mechanism other than including race to do to achieve those purposes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, basically that brings us up to today and the decision, and I think maybe in the next segment we can go quickly through the decision sure. today, and then I can talk a little bit about what the realities are and particularly why diversity is not just an abstract concept, but one that is absolutely necessary, particularly in the medical field. Okay. Okay, very good. So, uh, as I said, we'll be back, and next segment we'll go, uh, you know, further on this, on the affirmative action decision. Okay. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
So welcome back, Fallon Forum. Charles Goldman here with Kathy Burns, filling in for Ed, who um, has gone AWOL for the fourth. Uh, he wanted to go someplace where he could fire off fireworks, I guess. Well, they could. They do it here. Nobody, everybody complains, and nobody, you know, checks them on it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> don't do that. It, it, although I have to say, it's been extraordinarily quiet around. Uh, I don't know if people are concerned because of, of the smoke that's been coming in from the fires, and maybe they don't they don't feel they need to suck down any more smoke. But anyway, thank you to our sponsors, which include Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Also thanks to the Catholic Peace Ministry, an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. CPM is focusing on nuclear disarmament, the need for diplomacy in the Ukraine, and trying to end the permanent war economy. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. So um, as we talked about prior to the break, um, we're going to return to the affirmative action decision, and then I really would like to talk about the realities of where you you will likely see things go. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a lot for the colleges to figure out right now. Well, it's the colleges and it's the professional schools, the med schools and the law schools are big targets mm-hmm. of conservatives uh, when they're trying to make some changes uh, also. So it's not just colleges, but... The um, so the decision basically came down that race cannot be a uh, a checkbox mm-hmm. in the process, and that um, essentially, you know, if there were actually a list of equally meretricious, you know, <laughs> applicants, you can't move people down up and down based on racial considerations only. Um, there's a whole lot to talk about that because the sure. whole notion like who of keeps track of that well that and and, sure. and and the the you know the racial identification and and the gaming of the affirmative action system along with the gaming of college admissions involving you know test taking courses and mm-hmm. people you know advisors as to how to write your resume and advisors as to you know how to modify your chat GPT now personal <laughs> statement you know it's a game and it's a game which of course favors those who have resources. And the result of that game has been that the uh, children of people of color tend to be less represented at what's considered these elite schools by, unfortunately, this horrible rating system from U.S. News World Report. Um, And then you have higher participation rates among at at the, you know, middle level schools and then down in what's called the open access schools of minority students – where their graduation rates tend to be better, but the question is, you know, if you want access to certain things in our society, are you then disadvantaged? So basically, Mm -hmm. the case before the Supreme Court was the claim that Harvard was discriminating against uh, Asian American Pacific Islander students. Mm -hmm. And actually, even though the district court said they weren't, if you read a lot of the uh, internal documentation from the admissions office, they were. I mean, to the point that they almost admitted that if they actually just went on a merit system, 50% of the Harvard incoming class would be AAPI students. Mm-hmm. So how this became, and this is, this is the leap I'm not really clear at even to this moment, how this became that the spots that the Asian Americans should have um, gotten were the ones that were given to other minorities, other protected Mm-hmm. minorities, it, I, I still fail to see that. Because especially at a school like Harvard, white students are overrepresented. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the reality is, whether people like it or not, that over 50% of high school graduates in the United States now are non-whites. And I hate using that term, but it's just a shorthand. Okay. Okay. But I forgive you. But if you go to these elite level schools, about two-thirds of the students are identify as white Mm -hmm. so in fact the people who are and that doesn't reflect the the u.s population well well, again we're not going back to the idea of quota but Mm -hmm. if you're truly talking about fairness this is it's not representative and it's not representative for very clear ways that are actually probably more important than affirmative action to denying asian american slots 
And of course, this is the first time anybody really cared about the Asians Americans because, but it was convenient because all the previous cases had been white people who were sure. supposedly displaced. This time, it was a, it was actually a brilliant move. They took a protected class, mm -hmm. Asian Americans, and then, uh -huh. and then and then arrayed them against another protected class. Because the argument that racism against whites wasn't flying. Well, it wasn't flying enough to win. Correct. Right, to win the court cases. So they mm -hmm. they here they took one protected class against another. So. Um, that to me is where, yeah, that to me was where I can't sort of put together this whole how affirmative action for African Americans inhibited, you know, Asian Americans because nobody wants to look at legacies who, you know, get their slot for reasons that have nothing to do with mm -hmm. merit. In fact, a Georgetown academic said if you actually, you know, looked at merit at these elite schools, half the students probably shouldn't be there. So, um, but nevertheless, so this is the decision. It's a decision that's not going to get changed. It's a decision that actually is popular with the majority of Americans. About 52% mm -hmm. of Americans overall approve of the decision. Um, that number is greatest among whites and Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of 50-50 among uh, Latino mm -hmm. Americans. And it's uh, only about 30% of African Americans agree with the decision. So it's not going to change. So the question is, where do we go? And so the thing that has basically come up is to move to a more holistic view known as, you know, as adversity scoring. Okay. Because really what the problem here is, is that some sort of scoring that took economic opportunity mm -hmm. and economic legacy coming into your desire to go to school? How many other people in your class in your family went to to higher education? This gets to the idea that diversity is tough to peg down. It, it, get, yes, but diversity it, is not just race. That's correct, okay. and and that's exactly right. Because one of the big problems at these universities is that there's too few people who are not economically advantaged. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, would also reduce resentment against it because there's plenty of mm -hmm. white people who are economically disadvantaged, right? The 87% that Brenna Bird talks about that may include a bunch of people mm -hmm. out in rural Iowa who never had the chance to go to college or their children never had the chance to go to college. So one of the schools that's actually um, pioneering this is, once again, UC Davis Medical School. Because this is a medical school which is very conscious of two things. They want primary care predominance mm -hmm. in terms of their graduates, which means if you go for affluence, that. right? Appreciate if you go for affluence, you're not going to get that. As a as a girl from a small town in Western Iowa, yeah, you, right. You and they also know that, and this has been shown repetitively, that for for difficult environments to get physicians to practice in, which is places like Native American communities in California. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, African-American communities, uh, the Central Valley Latino communities. Um, you need to get people who are like people mm -hmm. from that community or very much are the children of people of that mm -hmm. community because they're much more likely to see the needs and go back. That's been shown repetitively. Mm -hmm. So this is not some theoretical... That would not meet some, strict scrutiny, too. That would meet strict scrutiny because it's clearly been shown that that is a policy. And the strict scrutiny scrutiny was the reason that the majority wrote was wasn't being met in the, in the it, case that is correct that is correct so the diversity scale rates every uh, student from zero to 99 it takes into account life circumstances such as family income parental education um, and basically it's a social socioeconomic disadvantage score um, it does Not something people strive for no that's correct it does, it does not include race in any way. Because remember, California was one of the first ones to say that race couldn't be considered by a, um, mm -hmm. you know, a uh, prop proposition that was passed in 1996, showing, again, it's not a popular policy, even in a state which is pretty liberal like mm -hmm. California. Um, the admission decisions are then based on that score combined with grades, test scores, recommendations, essays, and interviews. Mm -hmm. So... Now, this, this, as soon as this decision came out, the dean of admissions at UC Davis Med School said he, he almost immediately was contacted by like 30 schools saying, okay, how can we do this? And actually, this has worked because it has done exactly what 
UC Davis wanted to do, both in terms of traditional diversity, mm-hmm. right? You know, the, the phenotypic expressions, but in terms of result, where are their graduates going? Are they doing right. what we need as a society? This works. So needless to say, this is kind of what I think we're going to see a lot of. Okay. Okay. Almost immediately, Stephen Miller, you know, if you remember him. Guess what? Yeah, guess what? Right. Stephen Miller, you know, the xenophobic, and I I hate to say it as another Jewish person, racist, um, who was, you know, the guru for Trump um, during the— you know, for immigration during the Trump administration, um, he and some other organizations are already planning, they've already warned. Miller sent a letter around almost immediately to 200 law schools saying, we're going to be watching closely. See, because their argument, their argument is, and, and actually I think it's pretty interesting to go through their argument. Their argument is, is that if you're using social disadvantage, that's a surrogate for race. Okay. Okay, so let's flip that around. If social disadvantage is a surrogate for race, you are admitting that the way we have structured American society means that those who are among, not to say there aren't whites who are not socially disadvantaged, there absolutely is. But what you're saying is, is that minorities, particularly African-American and Latino minorities, mm-hmm. are socially disadvantaged because of structures that are race-based. White. Right. <laughs> so you can't have it both ways. Right? You can't say that social disadvantage is a surrogate for race, and then you can't have a court which says that, well, diversity is very admirable. It's so admirable they didn't get yeah. rid of it. They didn't get rid of it at the military academies. That's math. If A equals B and A equals C, then B equals C. Right. So, so what you're saying is that there are, in fact, still in our society structures that do, in fact, negatively impact people based on their phenotypic race such that they are disadvantaged in the very realm that you're talking about, which is education. So it, it, it you know, because essentially we had the usual, you know, um, John Roberts argument, just like with the Voting Rights Act, you know, things, things are fixed. We don't need these structures anymore. Yeah. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how some of these lawsuits go, which of course, Going back to the Supreme Court, who knows? When you say things are fixed, depends who you ask. Well, no, <laughs> we understand that, <laughs> right? Right, and we know the voting rights is not fixed. Oh, it is fixed, but in in a way that they they weren't intending. So, um, I think that's we'll stop here on affirmative action. There's so much more. I yeah, wish we and, could go on. And perhaps in the future we'll come back to it and talk about um, some other aspects of it. Yeah. Um, but let's take a break here and then. Um, We'll be coming back with a. a well, you'll have a special guest. A special guest. Next, we'll be, that's uh, next correct. Segment, yeah, so Kathy's going to be stepping you. out. She's going to be stepping out, and we're going to have a special guest in her place. Years ago, Chef George Fromaro envisioned a new market to house all his favorite foods under one roof in the heart of Des Moines. From that vision, Gateway Market was born. Over the years, Gateway has become Central Iowa's premier good food store bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate, personalized service. Gateway's welcoming environment in downtown's Sherman Hill neighborhood encourages discovery and honors the simple pleasures of the table. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, experience the good food difference at Gateway Marketing Cafe. Catholic Peace Ministry was founded in 1981 to work for peace and justice. It's an independent nonprofit with no ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese and is guided by an ecumenical board representing many faith traditions. CPM focuses on the urgency of nuclear disarmament and the need for diplomacy in Ukraine. CPM also provides an educational forum about the permanent war economy, which must be challenged if we are to achieve lasting peace and justice. Learn more at catholicpeaceministry.org. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. 
Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Western Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. So, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, this is Dr. Charles Goldman. I want to thank our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, long-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has, cured, has cared for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. The following segment of the Fallon Forum is a parody. Anyone who takes it differently just doesn't know Ed or Charles or Kathy. So we're, we're honored today to welcome a, a new guest to the program, to the Fallon Forum. And this is a Patricia Longbottom. She's founder of what she calls the newest and strongest wave in parental rights, Frankness USA. Ms. Longbottom, may I call you Patricia? What is your Frankness USA movement all about? Well, first of all, it's Mrs. Longbottom. And yes, you may call me Patricia. You know, Charles, your use of the term Ms. is actually one of the issues that Frankness USA is bringing to light. I am married to a man as God intended, and I won't skirt around that issue with a made-up term like Ms. And speaking of names, I feel blessed that I was given my first name, Patricia, by my beautiful, loving Christian parents because it reflects who I am, a patriot. I love this country, and I especially love the children of the United States and want them to grow up to appreciate our great nation for what it is, a place of freedom founded on Christian concepts of virtue and truth. Very interesting, Patricia, but back to my question. What is your movement about? Frankness USA, or for short, FU, is about rising up against the oppression of the left-wing radicals to speak our truth in frank, unapologetic terms. As parents, we need to do this because every day, from every angle, our children are being indoctrinated by people whose so-called truths are actually confusing and harming our precious, innocent youth. So, uh, you use the word truth in your description. Is there a reason you don't use that word in your title instead of the word frankness? We use the word frankness because it's not arguable. You know, everyone has their truth and their version of truth. But when you say something frankly, no one can argue because it's your truth. These days when you try to speak truth to the woke left, all they do is argue. And we're trying to save their children as much as our own. Well, Patricia, thank you for the air quotes around truth. Um, you, you are an Iowan, correct? Yes, I'm proud Iowan. And I started this movement here. We're sure we're going to see it sweep the country. Okay, so what are some of these truths that you hope to get people to listen to when you state them frankly? Well, that's a very good question, and thanks for asking that, Charles. We're frankly stating one main thing, and that one thing has a lot of angles to it. Here it is. Parents in the United States have the right to protect their children from institutionalized misinformation and sexualization brought on by the woke left. This applies to everything from who uses what bathrooms, to what our children read in schools, to the international, or excuse me, to the intentional degradation of the image of America in our children's eyes. So one thing your movement is about, or your organization is about, is gender identity? Yes, at FU we say, frankly, there's no such thing as, quote, gender identity. But for some reason, our youth are having these concepts shut down their throats from schools, from social media, and even from some churches. Although I doubt those churches are legitimate because they aren't following God's divine plan. God doesn't make mistakes. Okay. First of all, I presume you're talking about God 
as the entity that's described in both the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible, the Christian Bible? That's who God is. Frankly, someone who is worshiping someone or something else isn't a true American. Interesting. <laughs> let's, let's talk about children's gender identity, which you say is a made-up concept. What information or statistics do you have that children end up better off if they never respond to feelings they may have about their gender identity? We're talking about male and female. It's that simple. You are whatever gender God made you. Charles, I understand you're a doctor, so you know that a child born with a, a penis is a boy, and a child born with a vagina, excuse my French, is a girl. None of the sex change stuff. God doesn't make mistakes. Patricia, you've heard of biology, I assume. Yes, of course. I was a very good student back in the day. Well, I'm sure you were. But the sex of a child isn't always clearly determined by genitalia at birth. There are some children who are born with a little bit of a penis and a little bit of a vagina, along with a mixed bag of other private parts. In fact, of the 140 million babies born in 2021, at least 280,000 were not born with clear-cut indicators of their sex. Every year, people with XY chromosomes are born with, and that's the, if you remember, that's the male gene complement, XY, uh, are born with female-appearing characteristics and vice versa for the double X chromosome babies. So what you're stating, frankly, here isn't really holding water. Oh, Charles, they've gotten to you too, haven't they? If you dig deeper and look at some sources that aren't tied to big government, you'll see that the information you're talking about is fake. Actually, I used to be more like you, just believing everything and never fearing that people were lying to us in order to push their political agendas. But then I saw a YouTube video. A teacher in an elementary classroom was reading a book called Jacob's New Dress. Jacob's new dress. I'm not kidding. I mean, this teacher was literally telling these students that they can be whatever sex they want to be, which is a lie. So I decided to do some research because that's the kind of person I am. I like to see both sides of an issue. And the more I learned, the more afraid I got. This stuff was everywhere. Um, what do you mean it's everywhere? I mean, I assume we're talking about Epic Times well, and YouTube. You need to read Stolen Youth, Charles. It's, a, it's also called How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. The author used to be a columnist for the New York Post, so you know it's a reliable source. <laughs> the New York Post, huh? Um, well, what do you think children should read and hear about in schools? Well, frankly, wholesome stuff. As I was saying, when I started to research, I talked to other parents about what books schools had in their libraries Filth, just filth. Of course, here in Iowa, we had success with our legislature, and now parents have the right to have those books removed from children's access. And the schools also have books that try to make our students feel ashamed of who they are and what America is all about. Uh, first of all, what kinds of books contain what you describe as filth? Schools and libraries that cleverly mix books about degenerate sexual practices have been successful in swaying normal children away from their true selves and basically turning them gay. I really admire a man in Northwest Iowa who stood up to this and burned books on so-called LGBT issues live on YouTube. That man is a true patriot who frankly described the harm these books have done and took action. Yeah, I saw him outside the Reichstag, too, before World War II. Um, what, what type of degenerate behavior do some of these books portray? One book says it all in its title. It's called Two Boys Kissing. Boys Kissing! When young children are still learning right from wrong, it's wrong of our educators to expose them to the ideas that boys kissing each other is right. And another book called Families, 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 which was written for five- and six-year-olds, very casually talks about some children having two mothers. That's not only disgusting, it's medically impossible. Well, Patricia, I need to push back here a little bit. Children aren't turned gay by knowing that gayness exists. Also, I'm not going to argue that two women can't conceive a child together without some other assistance, but they certainly can raise one as a family. Charles, you have your truth and I have mine. Frankly, though, your parents, our parents have the right to stand up against those who have opinions like yours 
forcing beliefs on our children who are so innocent and impressionable. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about schools teaching children not to be proud of America. One title sums it up, Charles, To Kill a Mockingbird. Reading that book would make someone think that America, where the great Abraham Lincoln banned slavery over 150 years ago, is a racist country. Schools should be teaching children about how America is the land of opportunity, not oppression. People just need to work hard and stop blaming everyone for their situations. Okay, well, we've let you have your say, and now I have to say, and not to get all Red Butler on you, but frankly, Patricia, I don't give a damn about your conspiracy theories and your faulty sources of information and your attempts to strike fear into the heart of every parent in America. We're out of time anyway, so we'll have to end on this note. Thank you for coming on the show today. All I can say in response is that I will pray for you, Charles, and hope that someday you'll see the light. I promise to continue Frankness USA, F you. Charles. <laughs> well, thanks. Thanks again there to uh, a new organization. And actually, I'd actually like to dedicate that segment to the um, Hamilton County, Indiana Moms for Liberty, who felt it was a great idea to quote uh, a uh, quote from Adolf Hitler, include a picture actually also, on their letterhead for their newsletter. So I think they'd fit right in with uh, your Frankness, Frankness United organization. Frankness USA, excuse me. So we're going to take a short break, and this is Charles Goldman. Kathy Burns will be back. We're filling in for Ed, and we'll be back in a minute. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures, great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. And I want to thank our sponsors again, including Gateway Market and Cafe, Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with community focus, check out the Gateway Market and Cafe. So I'm here again with uh, Kathy Burns and uh, Ed's off doing his Mission of Mercy. And when we were discussing getting the show together, I asked Kathy whether in the food and farm segment um, we could talk about a topic dear to my heart, which is food for the apocalypse. Because but you read the Epic Times. Well, that's right. Well, and and my plan is I'm just hoping that the supermarkets will still be open. But that, that's what I wonder, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a great that's plan. What I wonder about these lists. <laughs> so I I found on Insider.com and not the source you thought I got it from Charles, which should. The Mormon Church, right? Well, I, I think that they have a lot of expertise in yeah. how to stock up. Yeah. Uh, so Insider.com lists 14 foods. It says to keep in your bunker to survive the apocalypse. So I'm just going to quickly read through the 14, and then we're going to discuss a couple of them. Number one, honey. Two, uncooked white rice. Three, peanut butter. Four, alcohol. Five, dried beans. Six, energy bars. Seven, certain types of candy. Eight, dehydrated meat. 9. Bullion cubes. 10. Canned fruits, veggies, soups, and even meats. 11. Powdered milk. 12. Instant coffee. 13. Hardtack. And 14. Pure vanilla. Uh, before we go back down the list and sort of flush it out a little bit, um, I guess that flushing it out would be another way of surviving the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, Taste I, 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 don't see, I don't see potatoes. I mean... I've seen The Martian, and so <laughs> I, 
I'm think, wondering about that. I think that. this list is considering the fact that we may not be able to grow food post-apocalypse right away, at least for years, like in the Martian where he had to, you know, collect his own fertilizer and then create his own soil. Right. Well, as somebody who, who you know, runs an urban farm and does use mm. your basement, you know, to preparatory grow things. Yes. I mean, what options would we have? You know, because it, it, I, I guess it, it's kind of like that's my issue with, you know, being so dependent on somebody else processing my food, which is we do grow a little bit in a garden at the house. Mm. Um, I, you know, I don't slaughter animals for food. And I guess... Like we do. Like you do. That's correct. <laughs> um, so, you know, would, would there be an ability to grow food without being able to go outside? Let's I, say this is some nuclear holocaust. I think in your bunker, you'd better have a lot of bags or bins of seed, seed starter, uh, potting soil, and a, a lot of great big pots and some grow lights. But I'm not sure how you're going to run the grow lights. Well, that's well, that's the thing. I that's the problem I have with the whole bunker, which is that you know you, these people who are like buying up these bunkers, you know these abandoned missile bunkers up in the uh, Dakotas. It's all premised on. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they're setting it up with an entertainment center. Okay, uh, where's the electricity going to come from? They need to even be able to see. They need to go a lot, to a lot of those events where they give out those little glow lights that they put <laughs> kids put around their necks and their wrists and stuff, and get a whole gob of those, and that'll be there. Well, I think the other thing is, is you know, there, there is certainly the possibility of wind power because there will be wind. Mm-hmm. Solar eventually, but solar is probably not going to work because. If, if there's truly a nuclear holocaust, there's going to be a, a lot of clouding of the atmosphere to the point that we're probably not going to be able to use solar power. So, I, again, I mean, we're so dependent on electricity as a... Sure, we just presume. Power. We take it for granted. That's right. So well, let's, let's, let's look at some of these things just so that some of you might want to, like, you know, rearrange your pantry to be ready. Well, we've got the honey. Yeah. Because we have bees. So, uh, you know, Charles... Because, Are you going to move the bees downstairs have... in with you? <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> right. we, we, we'll have to... We'll have to store a lot of it ahead of time, but it does keep forever. Right. There, there's been honey unearthed from you know ancient tombs that that can be you know decrystallized and still it's it's good. And that's because it's all sugar. It just doesn't collect bacteria. Right. Because yes, high, that, that's why jellies you know are also relatively bacteriostatic, which is that mm-hmm. the os, the osmolarity of a high sugar solution, among other things, is is bacteriostatic. Well, you said that much more fancy than I would have. <laughs> okay, so honey, honey's a good idea. Obviously, if the bees don't have anywhere to go to collect pollen, I'm not right. sure how much honey they're going to get. I'm not. Yeah, you got to you got to have this in your bunker. You got to yeah. collect it ahead of time. Right. Um, what what what? Clean out, clean out Costco. <laughs> get all the hand sanitizer too. Right. Uh, what what one strikes your fancy, Charles? Well, I think peanut butter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of nuts in my pantry mm-hmm. you know and, and they Call the would, cops. would probably last um but right peanut butter doesn't have to be refrigerated mm-hmm. um it has a, a pretty good amount of oil and fat uh it has vitamin <laughs> i see you, have, I, I, you I, have vitamin e for longevity I, i'm not I, sure that that's going to be as much of an issue that was from the insider and i <laughs> i chuckled at that too longevity hmm? nice right you can and actually this is this is a, an important thing about peanut butter, which is you, even if it gets rancid, you can safely eat it, although it's not going it to taste the greatest. It good. Right. Um, I'm curious that they included alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, I'm not sure. Because, yeah. I'm, I, I'm I not like sure it. it's for its longevity characteristics. <laughs> well, it, it just says keep it out of the direct sun. Um, <laughs> for those of you who, who keep it out in the sun. Yeah, I, right. I, don't <laughs> store it if it has any flavor added or dairy products. Yeah, so that... that so I would, could, could you, if you kept vodka or, or you know, and something like that, could you use it for medical use, for sterilization of it if you have to perform a surgery or something, Charles? You, you could. I mean, you could because, I mean, you know, the, especially some of the variants of the clear liquors, you know, have 50, 60% alcohol in it. In which case, maybe just use rubbing alcohol. Well, yeah, I mean, probably you should just get some Schlibovitz, which is this Eastern European drink that I think is 140 proof. It's a, a clear liquor. Dried beans makes right. a lot of sense to me, but how are you going to cook them? Well, I, I think that's the other issue here is what are you going to do for water? Yeah, yeah. You know, and how are you going to decontaminate your water? I think for sure I would, you know, have sort of standard camping filtration 
And then depending on where you live, there are actually relatively small desalinization uh, pumps that you can use. Okay. And you you have those little drops that you put in your water to purify it for campers. Or you could use or you could use iodine, but they, actually using a, a, a dedicated filter is much safer, right? So it is a little bit yeah. The beans are not going to be that useful. I guess you could probably combine that with canned items, which is buying dry you know the beans that are already mm. cooked. Okay. And then you combine, but the problem that leaves the same problem, which is beans and rice, is actually a good complementary protein source. That's your whole protein. Correct, yeah. but um, complete protein. rice is a little bit difficult to cook without heating and water. Yeah, wow. Yeah. You, yeah. If you eat it, if you just eat it raw, if you just swallow it, is that going to give you, is your stomach you're really going to like... Blow. I think you're really going to bloat. So I think I, so. Yeah, I, and you're down in the bunker <laughs> with everybody. And exactly. That's another thing with the beans. Um, powdered milk. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's non-fat. It's, uh, I guess some survivalist stores sell it, and it, it indicates a shelf life of 25 years. No, that... that... Would be good enough, hopefully. If I hopefully take you're not in, be in the bunker for that long. If I take instant coffee with me into the bunker <laughs> with Ed and, and he doesn't have his tea, he's going to be pretty mad. <laughs> I know. I You know, I once went on a camping trip in which people brought an espresso maker. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't mean like it was like they bought it from Starbucks and it was like, you know, it was on their backpack. But they brought an espresso maker you could use over the fire. Okay. So, um uh, yeah, I, I take a pour over for the fire. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly, you know, people should shop the camping places because some of this stuff, you know, is already geared toward people who backpack. I think one of the most sensible ones is the hardtack, mm-hmm. actually. Um, that's, uh, if you watch True Grit, they talk about hardtack. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's flour, salt, and water separate. They don't, well, salt will last, but the flour and the water, you know, the flour isn't going to last that long. But mixed with the salt and the water, it's like a really, really hard biscuit. So you could you could gnaw on it. You could chew it. You could get, you know, it's not a lot of nutrients, but you could, you could last on it for a while. Okay. So um, what about mushrooms? Um... What's the nutrient of mushroom? I love the flavor, and they have to reconstitute them, of course. Reconstitute them. Well, you'd have to get them in hot water to, well, unless you just eat dried. You could, you could you could eat dried mushrooms, and I'm just thinking about the idea that if you don't have grow lights, then uh, you need something that doesn't require mm-hmm. a lot of lights. I mean, and mushrooms grow in darkness. I like that idea and dampness, mm-hmm. and then you can just eat them. Right. You don't have to store. You you wouldn't even want to store them. Yeah. And I guess I, there must be some reason why the Martian used potatoes. They had them on, on the ship. Right. No, I, I understand yeah. that. But. Well, if I if I had to add something to the list, I you know you mentioned you know animals. I would I would take two chickens, a hen and a rooster, mm-hmm. in with me. And some hardtack and dried beans. You could crush those up, and you can even feed them to your chickens. True. And the chickens will eventually make your make your next food. Mm-hmm. What, what yeah, would... they are self-perpetuating, and, and they would fit better in the bunker than a bunch of, you know, cattle and pigs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know the ark had room for all of these animals, but chickens would be yeah. the most sensible. And they're very they they can exist in very adverse Mix them with your bullion cubes and and uh, and, and your. Heart well, tag. as soon as the chickens saw the bullion cubes, they would know that there was a problem coming. <laughs> <laughs> they, they have brains the side of like a peanut, so I don't know if they... Don't be insulting to chickens. <laughs> Actually, ours were just squawking outside quite a bit. I, I hope there's not a hawk out there. They're probably uh-huh. laying eggs and bragging, bra- uh-huh. bragging about it. So. so do they take shelter, though, when uh, they see the hawk? <laughs> they do. Well, good. So they, they have some brain. Well, anyway... So we've reached the conclusion of our show. I'd like to thank our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Dieterman, Ed Fallon in absentia, Kathy Burns, and myself, Charles Goldman. Thank you also to our local small business partners, Gateway Market and Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Iowa Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and the aforementioned Birds and Bees Urban Farm. So I'd also like to thank Kathy for her 
her excellent work. No AI was no AI was involved in the production of our parody segment, and she didn't she didn't violate the SAG uh, line. So um, we'll be seeing you next week on the Fallon Four.